welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Krabby Christian, a Misfit Media Network production. I am your host and resident Krabby Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Blake. A real pleasure. I am super excited about the things that we're going to talk about today because I love these things. I love the idea of challenging the way we talk about prayer and holiness and the pursuit of it. Here's what I have found, though. A lot of the voices that are trying to lead in that, they end up being a little aggressive. (laughs) Mm. And your voice in this space feels like a warm blanket. No but not in the way of I'm just going to sit here and be comfortable. It is you're still challenging people. You're still drawing them out of maybe what they think they know, but you're like, but it's okay. Like, it's going to be okay. We're going to do it together. It's we're we're literally figuring it out together. So your new book, Beholding, Deepening Our Experience with God, tell us about it. Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you. That's really nice of you to say. And I think it's an interesting thing. I think when we're like looking for new ground, we're trying to find new space for ourselves. We often think that uh, our culture, I think, teaches us to be aggressive and a little bit violent, I guess, not physically, but attitudinally or with our disposition. And I think what I've discovered sort of following Jesus and looking at the, the life of Jesus is that it's very easy to be provocative in a gentle way. You know, sometimes gentleness and just kindness can really rub people up the wrong way, especially if it's a powerful truth. So I have certainly found that um, there is this way of sort of arriving to God where he does deeply challenge you and kind of strip you bare, but at the same time with a smile on his face and you're kind of left going, I don't know whether to be angry or grateful right now, but I'm I'm happy that I'm moving forward. So that's that's nice you said that. But yes, the book Beholding. So I I've had a journey and part of that journey has been really a journey of wanting to move from a working relationship with God to a friendship mm. and in a way being having that forced upon me through circumstances that I wouldn't really appreciate to put on anybody else. Yeah. But a journey that for me was, you know, I think prayer and knowing God can quickly become about doing stuff together or even this whole pleasing God tit for tat. That's a saying we've had in New Zealand, this idea of like, I give you something, you give me something kind yeah. of transactionalism with God. And I think what what happens when we live that way prayerfully is, you know, lots of intercession, maybe lots of repentance, lots of asking God for stuff. But when the list runs out, what Mm. on earth do you have to do or say with God? There's no sort of um, vitality. There's no desire. There's no goodness beyond getting things done. And so beholding is my way of saying, what if there's another way of being with God that is beautiful, good, and true, that is life-giving, and sort of pulls us beyond the realm of, I do this for God, God does this for me, and we've got this kind of contract that we're working through for the rest of our lives. I see it as like scales, hopefully moving. I do personally think that both 
coexist in our relationship with God, right? Like beholding Mm. and experiencing him. And then yes, like he is our shelter and he is our safe refuge and he does protect us from our enemies. But that can't can't be the only part, in part because it's a really exhausting relationship when it is all about like what's happening to you, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah. When you have the opportunity to like rest in his existence and his goodness. And it's, I think, obviously I can only speak from an Americanized church way, but it's like the scales have done this and we are leaning so far into like, what can God do for me? We know about the beholding. It's like they're in concept, but what if our experience of him is like supposed to lean that way more? Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think I think you're right. Culturally, I think we live in a real consumer society where our, the entire liturgy of our life is everything has a, a monetary value and price. And if it's not monetary value, it's something like, well, this relationship is going to further my career or this job's mm-hmm. going to get me here or I can this you know holiday experience is going to look great on my Instagram. <laughs> you know, we're so yeah. everything is commodified. And so if we live in this commodified world and we come to prayer, we're going to have to push back. We're going to actually have to do some unwinding to not project that commodification onto God. And so I think even though, like you say, most of us know beholding or enjoying God is there, it's actually very hard to push back against that impulse in us to say, oh, if I pray a little bit, maybe I'll just feel a little better or I'll get this thing or my marriage will be better or my finances would be better. And we don't mean it. It just sort of count. It's just part of our DNA and our culture. And so it actually takes a real intentional remapping of our lives to say, actually, resting in God and enjoying God is important. And I, even even just looking at our bodies, right, we have to sleep almost, you know, almost a third of the amount of time we're awake. And I wonder if God is kind of giving that to us as an illustration that we need to balance our rest in God with our activity in God. Otherwise, we do. We become very lopsided. We sort of emphasize the Great Commission over the Great Commandment, and we we get mm. a little lost. Oh, that was a word. We emphasize the Great Commission over the Great Commandment. Mm. I can tell you right now, people are not going to like that <laughs> because no. they no, have prioritized the Great Commission over the great commandment and they are more focused on making disciples than loving people in the process. Yeah. And that's obvious. I think that if we look out at sort of the waters of Protestantism in our time and really probably evangelicalism and a lot of charismatic communities now too, we're great at the, you know, we love the great commission, this idea of serving and getting out there and doing stuff, making disciples I mean, it's a commandment. Right. It is a good Absolutely. thing. You know, like Jesus told us to do it. So there's no no slagging it. But the great commandment itself, you know, when Jesus said all the law and the prophets can be summarized in this, it wasn't go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I think what happens if, if we have replaced that position with the great commission to go out and make disciples We don't go out in God's nature. We don't go out with the softness of his love. We don't go out beholding others and seeing the image of God in them. We begin to see everybody as a number. We begin to see them transactionally, that they are actually helping us achieve obedience to God. And they're just another figure in that, which is why I think sometimes 
we're like, oh, this many people got saved or this many. And we sort of quantify them like their marketing statistics. I know nobody means this. You know, I'm being, this is possibly a little cynical, but yeah. what it does, I what it's, think it's done to our hearts is it's created a church that is very good at pulling people in, giving them a job to do and sort of getting them active. But beyond that has no idea or hasn't been able to train those same people up in practices of rest and of love and of adoration of God and of prayer to become a strongly active church and a shallow prayer church. And I think that's why we see a lot of the sort of violent and despairing attitudes in, in pop culture today. So I think, I think it matters. I think that whole great commission, great commandment thing is really important in this time in the church. When I start feeling myself get off track, you know, like we have a new heart, we have the Holy spirit, you know, you know, when you're, when you're losing the thread, that really is what I come back to is, okay, what did he leave us with? It was love. He left us with love each other and love him. Mm. And that's not a cop-out. And I, you're not saying that as a cop-out. It's, no. it's not a, oh, like, that's all you got to do. Like, it's just love. Because, you know, there are voices that have elevated, let's say, elevated the Great Commission over the Great Commandments. Like, you can't just love. You can't just, like, love isn't the answer. Well, yes, it is. First of all, mm. full stop. That's my belief. Love, like changed hearts change behavior. Yeah. Right? And like, as I am radically changed by love, I'm going to make disciples. Yeah. They go together. It's not one or the other. It's they are incom- maybe like they're incomplete without each other. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think, I mean, when we think about ourselves being images or image bearers of God, in a classical understanding of being an image bearer, what that means is we look and sound like and reflect our creator, our father. So the whole idea is that we become so much like God that we are attractive and we are displaying the nature, not just the theology, but the nature of God to the world. And I think what happened over time since sort of in that enlightenment period, really beginning sort of 16th, 17th century, was that we started to think that what people needed was propositional truth mm. in order to encounter God. And propositional truth is very important. I'm, I love theology. I study it. You know, I, I read books like crazy, so yes. I'm not anti-intellectual at all. However, at, at least at the moment, those intellectual arguments mean very little when people's experience of the church or of Christians is one of rejection and condemnation and an inability to listen and inability to care. So I think what happens as we spend time beholding God and abiding in God is that we're actually, our nature is transformed. You know, scriptures say um, that we behold his glory and are transformed into his image and likeness by seeing him. So I think this whole idea of us becoming living, walking Jesuses to the world around us is very missional. And it's, it's so attractive when you meet somebody who is full of genuine love that isn't, it's not floppy. It still carries that sense of courage and sort of authority. But when you meet those people, it's deeply attractive. And so I would argue that the spending time with God and learning his kind of love and taking on his nature is in many ways the missional proposition of our time in a world where communicating propositional truth is, is less helpful than it was. So I think for so many reasons, it makes more sense to place that great commandment and priority where it belongs. I do think that some people's concern with beholding or the 
mystic, the mystical wonder mm-hmm. of it is that they think that you, I love that you use the word floppy, like that yeah. you are going to not have a backbone and you're not going to know what you believe and you're not going to be able to stand up for anything. I can tell you that my journey into beholding God, because I used to have a very clinical understanding and a very theologically grounded and mm. sound understanding of scripture. I still believe what I believe. Like Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Yeah. No one comes to the father, but through me, I don't believe that all roads lead to heaven. I don't believe that, you know, it, it, I have not backslidden into new ageism yeah. by beholding the wonder of God. And I do think that people think that that is a direct line. Have you experienced mm. that at all? Like, do people think you're new agey? Yeah, I've definitely bumped into a lot of concern around contemplative tradition. And I think the way I understand that is that some of the loudest voices in that tradition over the past have been voices that are quite difficult to understand. And I think about like Richard Rohr or, you know, those kinds of figures who there's a brilliance to them, but there also can be a lot of misunderstanding in the in the text because they don't talk like normal folks. But historically, if you want to call it Christian mysticism, which is pretty strong language, or the contemplative tradition or beholding were very, very orthodox. In fact, if you if you read the early church, they're talking about primarily meditating on Jesus crucified, and that is the the paradigm in which we enter into a beholding life. So yeah. it's very, very orthodox. So I think I have experienced those fears because I think people assume that by spending time in silence, you're practicing something Eastern, or by praying with prayer beads or something like that. But that's actually not... But contemplative prayer beholding is simply the the idea that god is ex- is able to be experienced mm. and we can experience him by opening ourselves up and saying i'm available i know you're available so let me just look at you let me just see you mm. and that should be practiced within a church community it should be practiced within regular reading of scripture it should be practiced confessing the creeds and taking communion with your community and practicing orthodoxy so I would say I, I can understand people's fears, but I, w- you know, in two thousand years of history, all of what we'd call the mystics, Saint John of the Cross, Saint Teresa of Avila, Brother Lawrence, any of those guys were deeply orthodox and would probably be given a fright if they were told they were New Age. <laughs> I was literally thinking about that the other day. So the reason I the conversation went that way is I had an episode come out this week about like, is it New Age? Or right. are you just uncomfortable, right? Like, it, it does yeah. this not fit in your westernized version of Christianity? And exactly what you just said, I was thinking of people that I've literally seen be called Christian mystics. And then you start reading their theology, and it's, oh, we agree on literally everything. Yeah. They are orthodox. They believe exactly what we believe. They just did it a little differently and maybe experienced God a little bit differently than you do, which then people get, oh, are you saying God is different? No, I'm saying he's bigger and better than maybe even we are capable of thinking he is. Yeah. yeah. Is what it comes down to. Yeah. I think that when it, when we start talking about experiencing God, people get nervous. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I understand like mm-hmm. there are a lot of people I've met who have said, oh, I'm getting into this Christian mysticism. And then I talk to them and I think that's actually, that's not true to the history of the church and it's not mysticism it is new age it is they're yeah. actually just looking for a reason to detach themselves from the person and story and reality of jesus christ as, as god's son 
and to, I guess, make room for views of the world that Orthodox Christianity doesn't allow them to hold. So I've met plenty of people like that. And I get frustrated because I go, okay, I can see why people are upset. But certainly there is to be a contemplative person, to behold God, to experience God in silence or in liturgy or any of those things is not to leave orthodoxy. And if I think one of the signs that you are heading in a, in the wrong direction is that those those core truths, those core realities are coming into question. It's just hard because each of us have a, have a different idea about what core, re- you know, for some people, a core reality is, is the seven-year tribulation and the whole rapture theology. For somebody else, it's something on sexuality. So it's difficult for us to agree, and I think that's where it gets hard. Yeah. But we can trust the history of the church and look at what that what has mattered to them, and that gives us, I think, safety. Well, and I think it loops back around to what we were originally talking about of, are you following the greatest commandment? Are mm. We are so incapable of disagreeing within the church about theological issues and just being decent to each other. Yeah. Like, we're on the same team. We can disagree. We'll figure it out together. But it does not mean that I need to like call your salvation into question or vice versa. Yeah. Anyway, I want to talk about prayer. My hope is I'm seeing this conversation happening a lot online and in like around my own kitchen table that I don't know what it is, but people are starting to maybe realize they don't want to stick to this party line prayer template that they have been given, yeah. right? Of I literally had a friend the other day say, I feel like prayer is supposed to be more than me just asking for stuff. And I was like, I think it is. I think it is. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about your experience. You had kind of a dark season of your own with some health issues, you're bedridden. And I know in the book, you really go into how that really radically changed everything, but your prayer life as well. Yeah. So I, I'm a musician by trade. So I find myself writing a book, very strange experience, but uh, I did music for 10 years and and traveled the world and, and loved it and pray before shows and after shows with people and see people set free and healed and just all kinds of incredible stuff. And for me, it was this amazing adventure with God where we were doing this thing together that he called me to do. And we lived totally by faith, like I had no money and and people would, you know, just amazing stories of God's provision. And then basically overnight, we I came home from a tour and it all changed. The financial provision ended. My health went absolutely, it bottomed out. I mean, I got so sick for, for years. I actually still been struggling with that 10 years later. And I had this massive crisis because... Not only was had God just basically stopped doing the miracles, stopped providing financially, he wasn't healing me, my body wasn't getting better, I was becoming miserable, you know, just sort of scientifically, if your body is as sick as mine was, you come under immense mental strain, anxiety yeah. and, and depression, and especially if it goes on year after year. So I was having a mental, spiritual, emotional crisis, and I think my biggest question was like, who are you? Like, who are you, God? Like, what mm. is going on here? How can I love you? And where I came to was that I realized I'd had a working relationship with God, that I knew how to pray when I was doing stuff. And so prayer was like, I got to keep praying for the world, keep praying for God to do stuff in me. But when you're sick and you've got nothing to do and you're not doing anything sort of quote unquote worthy for God, how do you pray? I mean, I had immense amounts of time. I couldn't watch TV because I felt too nauseous. So I'd just sit around for like 18 hours a day. And that's when I kind of realized that the primary purpose of my existence was simply to receive God's love and to return that to him. And so prayer became about sharing my life, my emotions, my honesty, my anger, my disappointment, my joys 
with God. And when that happened, the way that I pray changed. It became less about conscious mental dialogue, which is what I, I think we often think prayer is, like thinking thoughts toward God in sentences. And it became more of just, God, would you be here with me? Could I experience you as I experience the world? And in the, in the book, I kind of talk about beholding as being our gazing into God and his mm. gazing back into us, just this into this exchange of looks. And my life became about that. And I think what happened was suddenly all the ordinary mundane parts of my life became enchanted with God. I slowly started to have this heart transformation of becoming more gentle and kind and accepting. And I started to feel less distant. I felt this intimacy with like this this closeness with God that was like, he's never going to leave me mm. because it's, he doesn't love me based on my quote unquote ministry or what I can. I mean, I'm a terrible dad right now. I'm a terrible husband. I'm a, I'm a terrible musician. I'm, yeah. And yet I'm having these experiences of God. And so, yeah, it took prayer out of this place of how can God and I have an exchange of words or content to how can I exist inside God while God is inside me? while I'm inside life. And that's a, a really exciting and different way of seeing prayer. Thirty million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. And if you're among them, I need you to know that you're not alone and that there's a solution you can trust to deliver some results. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement. It supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the root causes of thinning. Nutrafol has three physician-formulated formulas using natural, drug-free, medical-grade ingredients so you can get the most reliable results. And in a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code Blake to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer they offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, Promo code Blake. I don't know anyone, and that's a bold statement, but I don't think I know anyone who has that experience with God and it didn't come from a season of great suffering. Mm. It didn't come from a dark season, a season of loss, a season of hard and Last year was really hard for me personally, kind of was, uh, I struggle with my mental health a lot. So there was, there was some mm. bedridden mental healthness and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And, but what I started to see come out of it about halfway through the year was exactly what you're saying. I was like, if he doesn't use the word exist, like just existing with God, then we're not vibing as much as I thought we were, <laughs> but like, just like existing with God and it not having to be a practice or a checklist, but it's just, it's everything because this is who I am. Your identity yeah. changes so completely when you can't really bring anything to the table. Yeah. And I think that it almost is like God is good enough to put you on your face, to let you fall on your face so that 
you can experience him without all the trappings of what you Mm. think you bring to the table. And it's like, it's just him being like, this is who I am. And that also means like, this is who you are. This is how I see you. This is who I have made you. And then you start living like that with one another. Mm. And it's completely different. Yeah. Yeah, it's profound. It's really cool. It is. It is cool. And and this is actually, I mean, I think it's a relatively misunderstood sort of concept, but that that's what the dark night of the soul is. And the dark night of the soul isn't actually meant to, it's not necessarily a season like I went through. It doesn't have to be that you go through a mental hardship or a physical hardship. You could be in the best season of your life, but God could just, in a sense, hide his gifts or hide himself from you so that you actually are left in this abandoned state of like, wow, how do I figure out loving God when he's not giving me what I need or want right now? And the whole point isn't to make us feel like God is left. The whole point of the dark night of the soul is to help us fall in love with God as he is, to Mm -hmm. actually just say, I value God more than him healing my sickness right now. I value God more than him healing my depression or overcoming my anxiety. I value God more than my marriage or my children or my finances or my quote unquote career ambition. And that's incredibly hard to do. We don't do that. We don't often wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I would rather this ethereal sort of God over any tangible experience I have. And so God arrives to our lives and he says, I'm going to help you experience this sense of emptiness in this area of your life so that you can discover something far greater. And that's me and existence within me. And I think partially like listening to your story as well, I guess relate to so much of it, is that we forget that the message of the gospel is that we've actually been brought into the Trinity. You know, we this is crazy stuff. I know. It sounds so like heretical. Yeah, it does. Every time it comes out of my mouth, I just want to say, like, hey, are we are we all aware of how nuts we we sound right now? But what we're saying is that through Jesus. And the gifting of the Holy Spirit, you know, Ephesians talks about we are raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places. And otherwise, if we're in Christ and Christ is in the Trinity, then we are participating in the community of God. And therefore, this is an embodied, primarily experiential promise that we are now part of this eternal conversation between Father, Spirit and Son, not externally, internally. I mean, that is just, to me the most insane thing to say. And yet I think that's what we're talking about here is coming into a deeper awareness of that existence of God within us as more than just transfer of ideas and dialogue, but as an actual participation in God himself, which is profound and mind-blowing. You know who I think really got this is David. Mm. You read the Psalms and David got this. Not perfectly, but your word is beholding. Mine has been like fanciful, which is really girly. It's like a girly take (laughs) on it, but just fanciful. And Psalm 84, like better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That is the heart of it for me. It really is. There's this really cheesy country song and it's And I thought I loved you then. It's Brad Paisley. And he tells the story of Mm -hmm. falling in love. That's how it feels. It's like, God, I thought I loved you. I thought I knew you. And I'm not saying that I didn't because I absolutely did. 
but it's like it was so good and then it got better yeah and you didn't think that was possible yeah what a gift man may we have like a thousand of those in our lifetime and actually that david psalm 27 one thing i ask of the lord this only do i seek that i may dwell in the house of god all my days and gaze upon his beauty yeah and i actually that's one of the i start the book with that passage saying what an amazing thing that this David, a man after God's own heart, like you say, who wrote these Psalms better one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere and and saw so much of God's glory. So many amazing army miracles and yeah. just generally mind-blowing things. And yet his desire, his one desire was to gaze upon the beauty of God. Yeah. And I think, what if in the church, what if in our communities, we reoriented mm. around, yeah, God, we want to have whatever people's passion is, church growth or mission or uh, whatever, great podcast, I don't know. That's all great. But actually the one thing I really want, one thing I desire is just to look at your beauty until yeah. the day I die Yeah. and how that would transform us and, our, and what we do when we get together, how we sing, how we pray, even just how we exist. I mean, what a gift. And do we believe that God is that beautiful? Mm. And I think that's a challenging question. I know for me, I had to answer that, and I think where I came to was, I think I need to have a revelation of that. I actually think when I look at my life, I don't live as though God is the most beautiful thing and worthy of my my gaze. Yeah. And I, I think it's it, to accept that is quite freeing. And then to, then to say, okay, God, help me. Help me to come to you and desire you. Yeah, help me to see your beauty in such a manner that everything else fades to gray and then re-enchant my world. And I think that's... That should be what prayer is, I think, at least as a starting point. How have you seen that experience change your relationship with music? It's a good question. But strangely enough, I think it's been the reverse. I think I understood it in music long before I was able to explain it in practice. Yeah. What I always loved about music, I mean, when I write music, it was always prayer. So I would just pick up a guitar and usually write like an album's worth of songs over a couple of weeks, just in tears, praying in my prayer room. And that's... Music for me was always this strange experience of encountering God and letting it be, but I never felt the need in music to try and explain everything perfectly. There's, there's a, a certain element of mystery to songs that you don't have to understand them mentally. You just have to experience them. And so I think in that space, I was like, yeah, I get this. Like God is this yeah. is, is in my expression, and, but in my prayer life, I'd still get to transactionalism. So I think when I when I got sick and I started to have this transformation of my prayer life, I actually looked to the arts way more than I ever had it and went, I get it. Mm -hmm. God is like a beautiful piece of art that hangs in a museum that you look at and you just go, I don't really understand why, but it's stunning and I just want to stare <laughs> at it. Or an amazing song that comes on the radio and you don't know why, but it hits you in the gut and you just start weeping. Yeah, like you're like, why am I crying? <laughs> 100%. And it's not because the lyrics are telling you something about the scientific processes of the world you didn't know about. It's because it's a heart cry. And when I looked at the arts, I went, that's what it's like to experience the mystery of God, to simply encounter him and go, I don't know what's going on, but I like it. <laughs> so it's almost, you know, music got to bleed into your re the rest of your life. Yeah. That like mystery. It's not mystery. It's enchantment. It's, it's, it's gosh, beholding really is the best word for it. I have to say, <laughs> well done. <laughs> that is so good. So <laughs> another you. thing that you talk about in the book is different forms of prayer. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit. Tell me about that. Yeah. So 
I spent a little bit of time in the book trying to explain what was a very sort of wrote by blow by blow learning of my own. Because for me, when I went through this process, I didn't know anything about contemplative prayer whatsoever. So I went through about three or four years of just sitting quietly, staring at creation alone because I was unwell and had, you know, just no noise around me. It wasn't until about four years later I came out and said, oh man, I just love this. And I start talking this way and people are like, oh, so you've been studying the mystics or contemplative tradition. I was like, what wow. is that? And so <laughs> really I've spent the last couple of years realizing that my experience is a part of the, of, of the Christian tradition. So in the book, I try and say, this is how it came to pass for me. And some of that is learning how to be in silence and really what silence means, because by silent, we don't mean just turning off all the noise. There's a way of bringing ourselves to God in a silent disposition and building room within ourselves to experience God quietly. It's not just, you know, switch everything off and stare at a candle and, you know, let your mind go wherever. There is a sense in which we learn to see silence as a language of God. Mm. And I talk about sort of listening prayer, which was for me about sitting with God and as you do, accepting the reality that he's present mm -hmm. and that his presence means compassion, kindness, and love. And then instead of trying to listen with our heads and our ears, imagine sort of our hearts, our heads dropping down into our hearts and just saying, God, I want to know what you're feeling. I want to be with you. And listening with our gut, you know, kind of the same as I use the illustration in the book of, I don't know if you've been in a conversation with someone and they're talking away and you're just distracted. Maybe you're hungry or you've got something going on in your brain. But at some point you realize that what they're talking about is very meaningful to them. Maybe they're talking about a breakup or a loss of some kind. And you switch from that kind of mental kitty. Yep. Yep. You're nodding away and you're receiving the information into like a pause, breathe. And truly, like, be present. You'll, you begin listening with your whole soul and your whole being and saying, I can see this matters. That's what listening prayer is. It's kind of turning to God, not just with our, hey, Godness, but this sense of, I'm going to bring my whole, like, this is, you're important. I want to bring yeah. my whole being. And so I sort of talk about prayers like that, that are quite hard to language. And I, I did my, you know, I do my best because we're talking about experience and yeah. unlanguageable things and God. But there are, I do mention a few other practical things, like one thing I did when I was starting out was to just say, hey, God, as often as I could during the day, hey, God. And the goal was to kind of turn my attention yeah. toward God and everything I was doing. And what that did was it built, slowly built a, an unending consciousness of God in my life. And so I talk about those sorts of things as well. I like that it ha it does have some structure to it. You know, I think... Sometimes it feels like these things get away from us, like they're a vapor and I don't, I have no idea what I'm doing. Mm. Sometimes I need a little instruction. My brain is very loud, very, very loud. Sometimes I need, oh, like, like, okay, take a, I love what you said about dropping your head into your heart. I can visualize that, right? So like mm. just putting language to how we can step into these things that are completely available to us. It is there. It is waiting do we have the ability to step into it and experience it? You know, I tell people, one of my favorite things is like, you can't get more of God. You have all of him. Do you have the capacity to experience more of him? Yeah, probably. Mm, yeah, I love that. One other thing that I pulled from your Instagram that I was reading and I was like, this is it. It was just this one line. It said the idea of God shattering our juvenile understanding of him. 
that sent the way that you wrote that, that it's not we shatter it. It's not we learn more. We ascend. God shatters our, that is our understanding of him that we have created. And it's like a glass ceiling breaking, right? He shatters Mm. that and you're like, oh, and we kind of talked about that earlier. Oh, wait, there's more? How could there be more? (laughs) Like how, how could it get better? Do you feel like you experienced that shattering? Was that through kind of that season, that dark season? God really broke apart what you thought you knew of him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I had a whole bunch of lines. I mean, when I started my whole music ministry, it was through this very sort of weird, miraculous, strange experience. And so I said to Katie, I was like, we will know that God wants, is finished with the music ministry when he stops providing financially. Mm. And that was a, a little box I created because in my mind, I thought God will always resource what he calls. And I mean, that's just, maybe that was my Pentecostalism coming through back then. I'm not sure. But in the end, what happened was the money ran out. We stopped being able to buy food. We couldn't even put petrol in our car. Our phone and rent started to fold. And I, every time I would say something like, okay, Katie, I quit. I'm going to go get a job. Someone would literally walk off the street that I have never met in my life, put $20, a $20 note in my hand and say, Strawn, you don't know me for a bar of soap, but I saw you and God just said to me, you're doing the right thing. Do not give up. He knows it's hard. And that stuff would happen time and time again. So he broke that box. I had another box that if I prayed and fasted and cried out to God enough, that he would heal me mm. because I was, you know, I had faith that God heals those who asks. And I still believe that, but I don't know what that means for my life. I'm 10 years into into it. So there were lots of boxes um, that, uh, but maybe the biggest box was that I had to earn God's love and I would never have preached that ever. In no. fact, I preached from the pulpit the opposite of that. But deep down in my 20s, my biggest question was, two questions were, God, why are you so far away? And why can't I experience your love? And what I learned in my darkest moments was that God, I had this morning, and I I talk about this in the book too, where I said, God, why can't I experience your love? And he said to me, Strawn, I've been loving you your whole life. You've just never accepted it. Mm. And I suddenly realized that what I hadn't done is sat down and actually practiced receiving God's love. And so a box was blown that God's love was something that would just interrupt me and overwhelm me. Actually, God's love was something I had to start sowing into my life and receiving. So lots of boxes for me that were just just exploded Yeah, that came from being completely pulled apart. Yeah. I wish I was, you know, not stubborn and thick enough that I wouldn't have had to go through that, but I am grateful for it. Do you think you have any boxes left to break? Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. I think as human beings, we are full of little dualisms, you know, like just like me saying, I knew, I mean, I studied theology at university. I pre, I've been preaching my whole life. I know that God loves us no matter what. And yet deep down, I lived in opposite truth. And I doubtably know that there is so much in me that I am going to keep learning and unlearning. You know, I love what, I'm not sure who said it, but the statement God's mystery doesn't mean that he's unknowable. It means that he's endlessly knowable. And I I love that because the idea is like God is mysterious, not as in I can't know him, but as in I'm never going to, I'm never going to stop discovering him. Yeah. And I think what that means is I'm also never going to stop discovering myself and all the walls and lies and misunderstandings I have. And 
I've come to see that as a beautiful adventure. I was about to say, that makes me so excited now at yeah. this point in my life. Not in a, it's not an urgency. It's not a, oh, like what box next? But it's, it's a, what's he, what's he going to do next? What's he going to bust through? Yeah. Like, what's he going to bust apart next? Like, it's exhilarating because having those things busted apart, like I was saying earlier, I think it's almost always painful yeah. and pruning in some capacity, but his pruning is always fruitful. And so I think when we can get our eyes and again, I realize that this is easily misconstrued and I'm not saying that we do things for the fruit, but knowing that the fruit is going to come and how good it is, is this nice little like hold your hand through it. Yeah, this sucks. Yeah, you're having to relearn and unlearn and deconstruct and reconstruct. It's going to be so good. Yeah. Just remember that, you know, is just a nice little just like sits there. Yeah. And I, I think you when you go through an experience like this, you see it all through the New Testament. And one of the passages that really stuck with me over the years was in James, I think it's chapter one, where he says, yeah, it's in like the first few lines of the book, says, take joy, my brothers and sisters, when you suffer trials of all kinds. Yeah. And he goes on to talk about how we're made into God's likeness. And the, the early church, this is amazing to me, the early church enveloped suffering. So they didn't try and avoid it. They knew it was coming. If you read the epistles, they talked about suffering. The very fact that they talk about perseverance right. is a sign that they were used to suffering. But instead of avoiding it, they would envelop it and allow it to transform them into the likeness of God, you know, because it, it produces perseverance and faithfulness and patience. And so there is the sense in me now when I'm going through a season and I go through many dark seasons where I sit and I go, okay. I hate this. Yeah. I'm going to let some psalmic language out at God here. Yeah, I know he can take it. But I'm also going to say, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. Because somehow in the midst of this dark night I'm experiencing and this torment or this pain or this disorientation or this deconstruction, somehow I'm going to be more like my God and I'm going to experience him more and I'm going to, I'm going to take joy in that. Yeah. Like sign me up for that. Yeah. Sign me up. Like let the victor not be the victor just because he removes suffering, but also because he transforms it. And he uses it. Yeah. Like find me a God that good. You can't because yeah. there's one, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's such an incredible conversation. I know we could just keep going, but I gotta, gotta respect people's yeah. time. <laughs> Where can we keep up with you online? I know you have a few different platforms. Yeah. So can find pretty much all my work under the moniker commoners communion it's commoners communion so my website i put publish prayers on instagram I, I have a little podcast and of course beholding my new book you'll just find it out there out there in the world and all the places all the places you get books yeah yeah awesome thank you so much this was amazing oh thank you so much for the conversation it's been a real pleasure hanging out i've enjoyed it all right that's it for this week Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right. See you next week.